worship folder. Our scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. We're going through a series on the character of God. We're calling it God is. We're looking for those revelations of his nature and character and how he invites us to respond to him. So let's read God's word. I like it when you read it with me. So let's read out loud together. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now this passage is really about what is true prayer and how do you pray in a way that, that really meets the heart of God. How do you how do you become effective in your prayer life? How does your prayer life go beyond the ceiling and begin to, to really make an impact, uh, not only your life, but the life of the people that you love? And so it, it, it goes at the whole issue of the heart. And the, the two descriptors here about the heart are that the heart needs reassuring and that the heart can condemn. And so it's basically saying that the realities of life, the things that you face, can put you into a restless heart position. And that, that facing the challenges, the trials, the difficulties of life creates an awareness of areas of dissatisfaction, of disquiet, all of these kind of things. And so what John is trying to do is to get you to understand that there's a true prayer that then reassures and gives confidence to your heart. So it's worth listening to him because prayer is a very important aspect of intimacy or nearness with God. So one of the things I'd like you to understand, that John, I believe, is, is saying this because underneath there is this, there's this belief, there's this understanding in the scripture that everybody prays to some degree. That prayer is a universal now, the Bible doesn't assume any other way except that everybody prays. You've heard the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. That when people are faced with the most difficult circumstances of their life, that the human, the natural human reflex is to pray. There's a show on television, that I, a series that I, I like watching about these Russian-Soviet spies and in a, a, a current episode, um, they, uh, their, their boss or whatever gets infected with a disease from a deadly pathogen. And the boss is, you know, feverish, looks like he's going to die. I mean, it's just a horrible, awful situation. And having done everything they could to help him, these three Soviets look at each other and say, well, what do we do now? And one of the Soviets said, said, well, if we believed in God, now would be a good time to pray. 
See, they come from a communist, atheistic background that says there's no God. And yet still the reflex is to pray. So there's this universal thing that, that is within each of us that when we get in touch with our true humanity. And what I mean by that is that you begin to realize you're mortal. You begin to realize you're not invincible. You begin to realize and take stock of the fact that there's a whole lot of stuff going on in your life that is outside your ability to control or your right to control. And once you get in touch with that, that true nature of your humanity, prayer becomes a natural response. But in, in another way, John is saying this, that you are truly human when you pray. That this is when you are truly finding your identity is when you pray. That, that the more that you face reality, the more you will begin to realize you have to be a man or a woman of prayer. Because life is too big. Life is too overwhelming. And so, now some of us, we've, we've resisted this in different ways. We've struggled against this. As a matter of fact, I run into people all the time say, well, I'm not really a praying person. I've always found that very interesting. In my own life, I've had, I've had two crises of faith twice when I walked away from God. The first time, I was in eighth grade. Uh, I was an eighth grade football player. I, was, I, I, I have to admit, I was just frustrated with life. I prayed. The pimples did not go away. Uh, you know, I, 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 I prayed. The girls didn't like me anymore, you know. Uh, uh, you know, we didn't get richer as a family. All kind. Of, I remember this one. I was playing football. I was an eighth grade football player. We were playing in the stadium in Pascagoula, Mississippi. I just like saying that name, Pascagoula. And uh, I had no money. My parents had sent me to the game with no money. I had no money. I was thirsty, and I said, "God, fooey on you." And uh, I did. I said, "Fooey, okay." <laughs> I was moral. Uh, so so I, I, stole, I stole a Coke. Okay? I, I figured out how to sneak in there, and I stole a Coke. But while I was stealing, I was going, oh, God, please don't let me get caught. Please, God. Please, please, God, don't let me get caught. <laughs> no God, still praying, you know? Same thing happened at, at a difficult time in my adult life, and I just said, I'm going to do it my own way. And the same childishness came out of me. I'd be doing what I shouldn't be doing, what I knew I shouldn't be doing, and I was still praying, oh, please, God, don't let me get caught. Well, I'm slow, but I'm not stupid, you know? And so I started to realize, I'm saying, even in my rebellion, I'm praying. See, there's this, there is, when you realize it, and when you face reality, you begin to realize there's something in you that says, I need something bigger than me. But here's, here's the thing that, that John is saying. This is the thing for us, is that for you to embrace this makes you more a man, makes you more a woman than you'll ever be without embracing it. See, you can live the rest of your life only on your own resources, and you can be a mere man. You can be a mere woman. But that's not, that's not what's inside of your heart. That's why your heart is restless. 
That is why your conscience speaks to you. Is because there's something more. And the more puts you in touch with the limitless resources of God. And so prayer becomes a way to be truly manly. A way to be truly womanly. It's the way that you become the truest version of yourself. And so the approach becomes everything. How do I approach prayer? This is what, this is what John is going over in this passage. He's saying, you don't approach God in any old way. You approach God according to his nature and according to his character. So to pray is actually to go before God. To have an audience with Him. To be one-on-one with God. To be in His presence. Now what happens with a lot of people is that for them, prayer is nothing more than an exchange of information. So prayer is for a lot of people nothing more than the same way you would send a fax. Or you would send an email or a text. Or even a phone call. It's fascinating. I won't ask a show of hands, but how many of you, when you phone someone, are actually hoping for voicemail? (laughs) So that you can get the information in and not have to talk to people. Okay, Most, Most of us, when we're really trying to get something done, we don't really want to chit chat. We just want to get the information across. It's why so many of us have stopped even having phone calls and all we do is text. Now listen to me. When you text, when you email, when you phone people, you can be in complete control of what you're doing. And you can be doing any and all kinds of things that we don't know about until you flush. (laughs) Were you in the bathroom when you called me just now? That sure sounded like something familiar. There's even, a, there's even a commercial. Now, I, I don't always uh, say about commercials because I'm realizing that the, most of like, the new generation coming up, you don't watch commercials because you watch Netflix or you watch Hulu or Amazon. You, so this is for cultural insight to you, okay, because commercials have a lot of cultural research in them. All right, so there's this one commercial, and this guy is all dressed up in a suit, and he's going to see either a bank or a mortgage company. He's going to apply for a mortgage. And next to him, uh, asking him, oh, what are you all dressed up for? Do you have a date or whatever like this, is a puppet who's in his boxer shorts. Now, I guess this is an alternative lifestyle, living with a puppet. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's a very modern thing or what, but the puppet starts you know, saying, where are you going, all like this. And the puppet in his boxer shorts says, this is how I apply for a mortgage. Okay, because you see, if you apply online, it doesn't matter how you're dressed. If you send a text or phone call, or it doesn't matter the approach. You could be listening to music, you'd be watching a movie, you could be doing all kinds of other things, but you would not be giving your full attention to the person you're communicating with. When you come before God, he gives you his full attention. And the approach that John is saying, that the only approach that gets you into the very throne room of God is when you give your full attention. 
So a lot of us, we even use phrases like, I'm going to send up a prayer for you. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to fax God right now. I'm going to text God. I'm going to, I'm going to email God. But that's not what John's saying is true prayer. He's saying true prayer is when you realize who you are approaching and you position yourself accordingly. That his desire is to give you his full attention. Think about if you are going to communicate with the president or a king or a queen. It would change everything about your approach if you thought, I am entering into the presence of majesty. You know, there would be no flippancy. There would be no, you know, familiarity that had contempt in it. There would be no disrespect. So there's a sense in which, until we start to get this, what we're doing is we're longing for million-dollar answers, but we're sending up nickel prayers. And then we wonder why we don't get those answers. Because we've never learned how to approach. Now, this, isn't, this is not unfamiliar territory for many of us. Like, Lisa and I, over the years, uh, it seems like in married life, timing is always a difficulty. For example, some of her greatest insights into our marriage and into our life have come during the Super Bowl. Or the final four. Or the master's last putt. You know, it's just, there's something about suddenly she, I'm watching this show or something. And I'm highly invested. And she's telling me deep truths about our relationships. Our relationship, and I'm going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And you know, when I'm doing that, She's not real happy with me because I, I'm not giving her my full attention. I'm, I'm not really giving her much attention at all. I'm really giving all my attention to the sporting event or the movie or whatever it is I'm watching. And she's longing for my full attention. I will, I will say this to you. At first in our marriage, I was furious with her. I was like, do you have no timing? Do you have no sense of timing? Can't this wait? Could you write it down? Send it to me, you know? Later on, I'll regurg- you know, I'll, I'll eat this and devour it later and stuff. Or can you wait till a commercial, I would say, you know? Uh, but I am always fascinated by shiny things, so that didn't work either. And after a while, I started to really think through this. I like the Super Bowl. I like the Final Four. I like the Masters. I like all those things. I enjoy them. But they come every year. They come every year. I have one wife. And you know, if she wants to talk about our relationship in the middle of the Super Bowl, I, I will turn that thing off. Because in the end, the Super Bowl really doesn't matter. I mean, I've already forgotten. How many of them are there? 50 already or so? I've forgotten most of them. And yet I was so invested in them, I would say to her, please, please be quiet so I can watch this. I said... To the love of my life, I love something more than you. Now, some of you guys are really mad at me right now. Okay? 
But the question is, the question often is, of course you're busy. But who's asking your attention? Who's asking your attention? Is it a, a baseball team that's going to love you? Will they adore you like you adore them? Is there a football team that's going to worship you like you worship them? Is there anything going to worship you like you worship it? I know one, I know one who adores me and, and, and even shows worth to me like worship. That's my wife. It's worthy to me to turn off the radio, turn off the TV, and to look her in the eye and say, you have my full attention. But see, through that I've learned, if she's worthy of it, how much more is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is the source of my whole life who says, don't send me a fax. Sit in my presence. Do you know why we worship before we ever get the word? It's because God is calling us into his presence before we hear his voice. And when we, when we begin to enter into his presence, we come before him with singing. Then we can hear his voice because we're ready for it. But see, if everything else has your attention, you're not praying. You're not praying. You're doing something else. Let me, uh, let me illustrate this just for a minute. Every complaint you make, every venting that you do is a negative prayer. It manifests your spot of contention with God. The enemy of your soul hears every complaint, every vent. And he says, that's your weakness. And he gives you more of it. Come on. Because, I mean, you know, again, I know some of you hate sports analogies. I, I understand. But it's warfare, sports, it doesn't matter. But your enemy will always exploit your weakness till you stop him. Doesn't matter if it's sports, warfare, it doesn't matter. Once they figure out this is it, and you know how the enemy knows your weakness? Everything you complain about. Everything you vent about. Everything you're unwilling to adjust or change becomes a negative prayer that he answers over and over and over again and will do so till you stop him. And the only way you stop him is to stop coming into the presence of complaining and coming into the presence of Almighty God. Well, to come into his presence literally means this. You guys have gotten really quiet on me. Are you hearing me? Okay, to come into his presence means that he becomes your governing reality. What I mean that is that he begins to govern what you see and what you feel. I heard a pastor tell the story. I thought it was helpful. There was a 16-year-old girl. She came to the pastor and she says, I know that God loves me, but what good is that if I can't get any dates? Now, don't say you haven't said something like this. Okay? So I know God loves me, but what good is it if I don't get any dates, if no boys like me? Okay? So here, here is how you begin to set the Lord before you. Is you realize that there's always at least two facts. For her... This was a reality. She's a 16-year-old girl. No boy was interested in her. Okay? She's also a 16-year-old girl who says and knows, God loves me. 
I'm a chosen one of God, I'm a daughter. Uh, those two are very real facts to her. The difference is this, which one governs her reality? If the boys don't like me governs her reality, then that's the video she's seeing. That's the video through which her whole life is now being interpreted. And all that God loves me is a, a background noise that is not coming through. See, if, if you can understand that, you, see, one, one is just kind of a knowledge, but the other one is filling her vision. Here's what the psalmist says about that. I set the Lord ever before me. I will not be shaken. See, he's not denying the other facts. If the psalmist was a 16-year-old girl, he would say, boys don't like me, but I set the Lord before me. I will not be shaken. See, there are some people who won't face reality, so then they're just living in denial, and their life is a lie. It's okay that you look and say, I don't have enough money. It's all right for you to say, my health is not the best. It's all right to say, my family is a mess. It's all right to say that because it's true. But the decision is, is that the only reality I set before me? If I know that is true, but I set before me the Lord, and the Lord governs that reality, then the promises of God begin to govern the way I look at those realities. I want you to practice with me. Will you say this with me? I set the Lord ever before me. Come on, some of you have some real issues in your life. All right? That kind of wimpy thing you just did is not going to scare the devil at all. Okay? This is you beginning to preach to your own soul. Beginning to say, I set the Lord before me. Okay? I will not not be shaken. shaken. See, that truth is always true, but the decision is yours. Will I set the Lord before me, or will I set my circumstance before me? And what happens with many of us, and why our prayers are so ineffectual, is we set our circumstances before us, and then we say, prove yourself, God. And what the Bible says is God's already proven himself. He needs to be the governing reality of your life. Which truth are you going to live before? Which do you live in the presence of? You know, are you the girl who nobody dates? Or are you the girl who knows I am the daughter of the Most High God? I will not be shaken. There will always be at least two truths in every situation. That you face. In every trial that you face. But which one are you going to live before? To come to before him. You've got to go with your whole self. He sees you. See the reason. I just remind you again. The reason we love emails and faxes and texts. And phone calls to voicemail. Is we stay in control. We're in control of the information. We're in control of what we expose and what we don't expose. But here's the thing. That scripture says he already knows everything about you. 
When you come before him, it is not an exchange of information. He already has all the information. It is all about, am I laying my life before him? Am I allowing myself to be vulnerable and to be examined? Now, vulnerability is basically honesty. It's honesty. Now, now a lot of us, we're truthful, but we're not honest. In other words, most of us in this room do not like to lie. We would prefer not to lie. But we also know what it is to hide. We know what it is to tell half-truths. We know what it is to tell some of the truth, not all of the truth. And when that happens in prayer, you are lying to someone who knows everything. And so to be anything less than vulnerable is to be deceived. And then that prayer is not true prayer. It's not true prayer. I, you know, I, for some reason this is coming up, so I'm going to share this with you. The only thing there time there was a harshness in the first century of the church. Everything in the first century of the church was this amazing, wonderful atmosphere. People, people gave up all they had so everybody had what they needed. People fellowshiped with one another. They ate together. They, they had friendships that were deep and meaningful. There was this incredible, beautiful thing. If you look in Acts 2 at the end and Acts 4, there's a picture of the church that, for me, is the vision of the church. But in the midst of that, there was this couple. And their names were Ananias and Sapphira. And they acted like they... They made like they were giving everything they had when in actuality they were holding stuff back for themselves. Now, I don't fully understand and it's not fully explained, but the Holy Spirit took the life of both of these immediately. When their lie was found out, they were, that, was the end of, that was their last breath. It's the only place you see a kind of harshness. You see a kind of, you, you see a, a guarding uh, move of the spirit to say the church is not going to be a dishonest place that the DNA that started the church was not going to be hiddenness and manipulation and all of these things there was going to be an honesty well something has happened down through the years and many of us even in our prayer lives we are in, we are incredibly false we put on a mask we say what we think people want us to say Truthfully, I, I've been in the church for 57 years. I would say 90% of the prayer meetings I've gone to in my life suck. And that's the Greek, okay? That's the theological term for it. Okay? And, and the reason isn't because prayer isn't dynamic. It's because people are hidden. They'll talk about things that have nothing to do with their hearts. And go on and on about things that have nothing of the Spirit of God in it. Because they want to do a religious thing, but they don't want to do a heart thing. See, God knows everything. There's no reason for you to hide. Now, you may say, well, if I don't hide from people, they'll hurt me. That's a lie in many ways. Because by lying, you're hurting yourself. And you're hurting other people because they don't know who you are. And so you can never know the fullness of love from anybody if you're an imposter. If your presentation is false and they're loving your false presentation, your heart knows they're not loving you. 
Are you hearing me? So then, thank you very much. <laughs> so real prayer, then, is you lay your life in front of him and you let him say what he needs to say to you. That's real prayer. Now, I think it's important that if you look at this text pretty carefully, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, real prayer is traumatic. I've enjoyed Keller's teachings and writings on prayer. And he says, real prayer is traumatic. Now, look at, I'll, I'll, I'll prove to you that. Reassure our heart before him. You only need reassurance when you're afraid or when you, you've lost confidence. So to reassure means your heart is in a negative place. And then notice what makes it so negative. Our heart condemns us. Our heart condemns us. And then that aspect, if you're a hidden person, it's pretty scary that someone knows everything. If you've hidden your shame and you have dark secrets and you have stuff that you don't want anyone to know and you think maybe... Okay, if they knew this, they wouldn't love me. That's pretty scary. We had an experience in the early days of doing spiritual warfare in the church and in ministry. We had an experience that began to open me up to what was going on in a lot of people's lives. There was a man who came to Christ in our church, and he, he was on fire for Jesus. Showed up at every meeting, every prayer meeting, and all of a sudden he stopped showing up. And I, I went over to his house, and I said, hey, you... You were coming to everything. What happened? Why are you not coming? And he began to tell me a story. He said, well, I was coming. I was praying. I was worshiping God. And he said, I have these horrible blasphemous thoughts. And then I would hear an act, a voice saying, you can't be a Christian because you have those thoughts. And he said he would have these pornographic images when he was worshiping. He'd be singing a song, and he'd see these pornographic images, and it would make him feel so sick inside and so guilty. And then he'd hear a voice, no Christian would have thoughts like that. And he said what happened is his stomach started hurting. And so he'd be in worship, and he'd start doubling over in pain because it was guilt and shame that was eating him up. His heart was condemning him. All right, you tracking with me on this? Now, it was Satan accusing him, but his heart received the accusation, and then his heart began to condemn him. And then his body began to react to the condemnation. So what happened was, he started driving to church, and the stomach pain would start coming. So even before he got into worship, just when he got into his car, and then he heard a voice say, you might as well stay home because you're not going to get anything out of this. So the heart is the place that Satan's going for. It's the place where the accusations, where the, the images that you have from your past, even images you have nothing to do with can come. Words that aren't even your words, but because they're in your head, you begin to believe this is who I am. And then the ac accusation comes, and it sounds right because you have evidence. And then your heart says, you're not worthy. You're not fit. You're not able. You don't deserve. That's what it means when the heart condemns. And, and there is some truth, friends, why prayer is traumatic. Because the closer you get to the standard, the more you begin to see you don't meet the standard. I mean, think about it with me. All of us look beautiful in candlelight. 
I mean, if we want to really put our best part forward, darkness is our best choice. <laughs> I mean, you go into, you know, uh, places that are lit with fluorescent lights, we all look ugly. You know, because suddenly all your blemishes are, are there, your pimples, your blackheads, you know, all the places of scarring, everything. And we go, get out of this place. I don't want to see myself. I mean, that, that is so true that, that the closer you come to the light and the holiness of God, you will see all the blemishes. You will see all the scars. You'll, you'll even hear a voice that will interpret the scars and the blemishes for you and say, you're not worthy. And if your heart doesn't know better, it begins to receive that. And then the heart itself Condemned. Satan doesn't have to stay around. He just plants a seed in the heart and the heart takes over and begins to condemn us. And you hear you're not worthy. You know, you're addicted to this. You gave yourself to that. You're not worthy. You're not deserving. So prayer forces us to face our past. It forces us to face our blemishes. And again, there's only one way to face it. And it's not in our own strength. And it's not in our own goodness. And it's not in our own performance. It's only when you begin to say, I may have failed, but Jesus never did. I remember falling into one of my weaknesses and into one of my areas. And I heard all those voices. You're stupid. How could you do that again? You're not strong. And you're, you're not worthy to be a leader. How could you do that? And I hear all those voices. And... and and many times I've just fallen prey and just let myself be condemned and say, oh, I want to quit being a pastor. I want to quit being a spiritual leader. I want to do it. And that day, though, I realized, wait a minute. That's my heart condemning me. That's not Jesus condemning me. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This isn't my voice. This isn't God's voice. This is a voice of an enemy. And I began to say, wait a minute, I may have failed, but Jesus never did. I may, have, I may not have passed any of the tests, but Jesus passed all the tests. And suddenly a spiritual backbone rose up in me, which I would call self-control. And rose up in me and said, you know what? It's not on the basis of me. It's on the basis of him. I show you his grade. I show you his report card. I show you his performance record. This is my resume. And something happened. And, and from that moment on, it switched. And anytime the enemy accused me, it became a prayer meeting. It became a praise gathering. You know what happens when you stop the heart that condemns and you turn it into praise? Because it's that condemning stuff that activates the love of God. And when you show the enemy that you understand that, he stops doing it because it doesn't work anymore. And Satan doesn't have unlimited resources. So when something stops working, he stops doing it. Are you listening to me? As long as it works, he'll keep doing it. But he is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. So he has to strategize. And if something stops working, he stops doing it. 
You want to end something? Then show him the door. Show him it won't work on you anymore. In other words, go to this verse and say this with me. God is greater than my heart. That's our God is today. You see, your heart condemning you can seem greater than anything else. Because it speaks your failure. It speaks your sin. It speaks all the blemishes, all the mistakes. But if you say, God is greater than my heart, then you begin to put things in perspective. Well, how do I get my heart at rest so I can do this? Well, we go back to what we learned before. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. When this man that was having the stomach issues and, and the blasphemy and the pornography in his head when he was worshiping, when this man confessed his issue, and I'm saying necessarily that there was sin there, but he felt like it was sin, but he confessed his issue, God took over, and God forgave him, and God cleansed him. But the catalyst for the forgiveness being applied to that situation and the catalyst for the cleansing of the mind that was struggling with those thoughts, the catalyst was his confession. Being able to say, look, this is what's going on in my head. See, as long as he kept quiet, his bones, his body was beginning to decay. But when he confessed it, Then he could stand up straight, he could lift his head, and he could say, God is greater than my heart. And the pain went away. And the images went away. And he got back on track with his his discipleship. You know, you've got to set this truth above all others. It's not about how great you are. I mean, as long as it's about how great you are, you're going to fail. If it's about how great he is, you know, it's like, it's like you're applying for a job and you don't have to send your resume. You send Jesus's resume, his performance record. See, this is the only place you'll ever get forgiveness. Only our God forgives. Every other master does not forgive when you mess up. Now, let me think through this last thing with you. And maybe none of you in here suffer from this, but I run into people from time to time who will say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And so they continue in a restlessness of heart because they cannot receive forgiveness. Here's the simple truth of this. Who the heck are you? I mean, who in the world do you think you are? You're the judge? I mean, first, let's just... Let's get honest with this. You're judging yourself not to be worthy when God has judged you worthy of his forgiveness? Who are you? I mean, that's just it's foolish to, to not be able to receive the forgiveness of God. But the other thing is this. What really you're saying is Something else is defining your worth, your value, your purpose, and it's not God's word. For example, there are some people, I mean, they can, they can be sexually immoral and completely receive forgiveness and have no trouble. But if they make one mistake in business, they'll never get over it. Why? Because they value the performance, getting money, 
getting ahead in their job. They value that as the way that they define their life. Other people could care less. They make mistakes in business, mistakes in money. They're fine. They just keep going. But if they are sexually unclean or they feel like they're sexually immoral, they're just like, oh, I could never, I could never forgive myself for that. Because somehow they have allowed a man-made thought that sexual sin is the worst of all sins and God can't forgive that. But his word says it this way. If we confess our sins, not just some of them, he's talking about all of them. If we confess our sins, then he takes over. And he forgives our sins and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And I remind you one more time, he bases it in his justice. He is faithful and just. In other words, the father will never take two payments for one sin. He's already received the payment of his son, Jesus. There's not a second payment to be made. All he wants is you as his child to receive it. So think about this with me, all right? Because I'm asking you, I'm asking you to change your prayer life. I'm asking you to scrap your faxes, your emails, your text messages to God and to get before him and in his presence to give him your full attention and to receive his full attention. That's what I'm asking. So why should we do this much work? Well, look what the promise is. Whatever we ask, we receive. If that's not worth it to you, then why pray to begin with? Because, I mean, I don't pray so that I won't get answers. I see no value in simply praying and never getting any answers. And here is a straight-up promise of God, whatever we ask, we receive. That's worth it to me. Now, will you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I don't want you looking at anybody. I don't want anybody looking at you. Okay, and I want you to take your right hand. Would you do this one thing for me today? Okay, what is one truth that makes your heart restless today? Maybe it causes anxiety. Maybe it makes you angry. Maybe it makes you feel a little hopeless or scared or whatever it is. Put that in your right hand, whatever it is. Let your right hand symbolize. It could be family stuff. It could be money. It could be your health. It could be a relationship. I mean, whatever it is, your job, school, any of those things, it's in your right hand, okay? Now just thrust it out. Thrust out your right hand. And then take your left hand and put it over your right hand. And say this with me. What, and I don't know what's in your right hand, okay? You know. And please be honest today. If you have no challenges, we're going to check you for breath. Okay? Put your left hand over the right. And here's what we'll say together. I will set the Lord ever before me. I will not be shaken. Can you see that with your hands? Let the left hand cover the right. Now, you can make a decision that your right hand is going to be what you set before you. And because most of us are right-handed, maybe that's the default setting. Like that's where you think your strength is. But now a whole new governing reality is coming over that thing. And you're saying, I will set the Lord ever before me. Think about the promises of God. 
If you abide in me, he says, and my word abides in you, ask what you will and it shall be done for you. The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you ask anything according to his will, he will do it. You can ask anything in his name. This is what we're setting before us. See, our video needs to be the Lord. See everything through him. I know it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's simple. Prayer is to go before him. Prayer is in his presence. In his presence is the fullness of joy. In his presence, because of Jesus, you can have confidence. Lord, we seal what you're doing now. In Jesus' name, amen. We have some folks up here who will love to pray with you after the service here. Especially if there's something in that right hand that's really is struggling with you, you're troubled. Sometimes just to say it out loud to another person can make the power of it go away for you. Okay? So our leaders are up here. They'll pray with you. They'll anoint you with oil. God bless you. I'm glad you were here today. We'll see you next week.